This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome again to Extra with me, Geraldine Doog, here on RN. To walk the road of peace, sometimes we need to be ready to climb the mountain of conflict. Tommy said, Mr. President, you're wrong. Now that takes a lot of guts. I'm for peace and quiet, Mr. Lude. It's why I came to the UN, quiet diplomacy. Yes, well, now to the final edition of A Foreign Affair for this year, where we'll try to unpick some of the trends of this month and this year. And what a year it's been in international affairs, a year that's, of course, been dominated by the war in Ukraine and its many flow-on effects, but also the pandemic and its different stages, uh, which produce different responses, all the related impacts, and with shifting national friendships. Three guests are joining me, Hervé Lemahieu from the Lowy Institute, Richard Haydarian, who's a very well-published um, Filipino commentator, and Su Lin Wong, who's China correspondent for The Economist and host of their recent The Prince podcast. Welcome to you all. Thanks, Geraldine. Thanks very much. Um, Pleasure. Have a broadly speaking, as somebody who watches this acutely, what's intrigued you most or what surprised you most about developments this very rather tumultuous year? Yeah, look, it has been a tumultuous year. I think three broad trends. One is, of course, the fragility of what we might call the rules-based order, obviously with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine beginning in February. What that showed was that um, all the trend lines that we've been watching for, for years now are accelerating. But at the same time, the paradox is that the, the response was much stronger than anticipated, and at least the West uh, is far more unified than it has been in many years. So Europe and the United States, the, the global West as well, if you want to include some of the US um, allies in Asia, Secondly, I think it's the fact that the um, authoritarian countries have really suffered um, quite a bit of, of reputational setbacks. Putin has been shown not only to be vicious, but also acutely fallible. And I think the authoritarian brand has been severely tarnished, not only by what's happened in Ukraine and by Putin's bl blunders on the battlefield, but also if you look at China, a slowing economy, the social and economic costs of COVID-0 have only mounted. So that has also been a surprise. I think the third factor is this acceleration in deglobalization or, or economic fragmentation, certainly the decoupling in global energy markets as a result of the Ukraine crisis, but then also in, in high tech in the um, uh, chip sector, for example, and that's going to have consequences for many, many countries who fall in between both the mm. US and China poles. Yes, I mean, radical uncertainty is what uh, various commentators have suggested we're living through and that in a way the responsibility of governments is to stay cool in radical uncertainty. There are things that you can do positively in radical uncertainty and then they've got to persuade their citizens that they are in some sort of control. You think there are people who are doing that better than others, do you? I wonder if you'd care to cite them. <laughs> Well, look, I, I think uh, a surprise has been, for example, I don't think anyone could have guessed a year ago that Joe Biden would be in a stronger political position in early December 2022 than either Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin. So, you know, I think the US has actually done rather well out of these crises and, and through its responses, it has to be said. I think Australia has actually done rather well as well. We've obviously had a change of government, a change of tone and approach to the region. And I think there's far more recognition that we need to broaden our aperture beyond just US and China dynamics, but look uh, to Southeast Asia and the South Pacific. So much more emphasis on, on the role of third countries and much greater recognition that not everyone sees the world through our prism, which is a sort of China threat prism. A lot of countries are, are more concerned by US-China competition than they are about uh, the rise of China in and of itself. And I mean, you control that power index, that very interesting power index for the Lowy Institute, where you look at a range of um, prerequisites for power, not all the typical ones. Like, for instance, the Japanese had been doing remarkably well. Would you say that's continued or has there been a bit of a shift? 
Yeah, look, I think uh, Japan is adapting. It's obviously an economy in slow decline just by virtue of its of the fact that its uh, population is, is declining and its uh, relative share of the Asian economy is declining. But given that that's a structural factor, you can't really do much about that as a politician. They still do relatively well in terms of using their limited resources to broad-based effect and, and generating quite a bit of clout in places like Southeast Asia and in places like Washington, D.C., and you see them playing both the sort of defense diplomacy card as well as the, the cultural diplomacy, and, and they continue to do rather well. Richard Haydarian, as a very keen observer, would you differ from Hervé's analysis? I absolutely agree. I think we're more or less on the same page now as far as the broad trend analysis are concerned. I think, of course, we all agree that we are facing a poly crisis, right? This is what's unprecedented about our era. We, have, we don't have a single... Uh, essentially an engine of uncertainty, but multiple ones from Europe to US and China on both economic and geopolitical fronts. But I think the big story really this year, and perhaps I'm biased because I'm based in Southeast Asia, is really what the Southeast Asian countries have been doing in order to arrest or kind of mitigate this radical uncertainty we're seeing on the global level. So in November, we saw back to back to back summitries from Cambodia to Bali, and then of course in Thailand, And the overarching result of that was essentially a check on Russia. We saw Russia was really isolated in this major summits. If you look at the statement on Ukraine, essentially identical statements came out of Bali, the G20 summit, and also in APEC, whereby it made it clear that, you know, people are not happy, including some supposed friends of Russia in this part of the world. But more than that, of course, we saw the Bali detente, the breakthrough that happened there. And I think Southeast Asia should get some credit Mm. for not only serving as a host to, but also mediating behind the scenes to make that Biden-Xi Jinping meeting happen. And more than that, to make it sure that something, uh, you know, concrete comes out. Of it. So I think we created a floor as far as the new Cold War is concerned. And perhaps we can nudge the two superpowers towards, you know, a better direction. So I think this is where we see middle power diplomacy working. Not only middle power at the level of ASEAN, but also middle power at the level of countries like Indonesia, which are a middle power on in their own rights. We're talking about a trillion dollar economy and a country of almost 300 million people. For me, the other interesting thing is, is also the poly surprises. So when you look at the Philippines, for instance, I mean, many people were surprised by Marcos Jr., becoming the Filipino president with an emphatic victory, you know, the highest margin of vote for any Filipino president since his father. But for me, what's even more surprising is his foreign policy direction under the uh, under Marcus Jr. I mean, if you look at the Philippines relations with China and U.S., it has radically shifted under Marcus Jr. So on the surface, Marcus Jr. is a continuity from the Duterte years. But actually, if you break it down, what we see is that our, our alliance with the United States is stronger than ever. And it's an alliance that is not only focused on the South China Sea disputes and shared concerns with China there, but increasingly the Philippines is becoming indispensable to U.S. strategy towards Taiwan. So the Marcus Jr. has been much more open to granting access to key bases, not only in the west of the Philippines, which is neighboring the South China Sea, but also in our northernmost bases, which are close to the southern shores of Taiwan, where a potential invasion can happen in the near future. And lastly, of course, just the other day, we saw Japanese warplanes visiting the Philippines for the first time since the end of Second World War. Goodness me. And this time, not in a menacing way, but this time in the spirit of cooperation. So what's happening here is that we're seeing the emergence of an alternative quad. So everyone talks about the quad of India, Australia, Japan, and U.S., but that's an unusual quad because three are U.S. allies or allies, but India is not. And we saw India is very different in terms of its approach to the Russia question, among others. But now what we're seeing is that the Philippines is bringing another quad together. South Korea, Australia, Japan, and the United States have been conducting different kind of exercises this year in the Philippines. And in fact, next year, there will be as many as 500 joint military activities between the Philippines and U.S., which is more than any Indo-Pacific ally of the United States, not to mention war games like Balikatan could have up to 16,000 participants, including from Japan, including from Australia, and more and more Koreans are also joining our exercises here. So the Philippines is now suddenly emerging as the pivot state as far as America's integrated deterrent strategy against China is concerned. That's a radical shift from the 30 years where our alliance with the U.S. was up in the air. Well, quite. In fact, just let's have a listen to um, President Marcos dealing with the the U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris. We stand with you in defense of international rules and norms as it relates to the South China Sea, an armed attack 
on the Philippines' armed forces, public vessels, or aircraft in the South China Sea would invoke U.S. mutual defense commitments. And that is an unwavering commitment that we have to the Philippines. Now, what intrigued me, Richard, was mm. I thought that, in fact, he didn't take this foreign policy, did he? Or he, was, he wasn't explicit about it to the elections. Um, mm. And he, he's flipped the whole thing. So are the, what yeah. do you think? Are the, citizens, are the citizens on side or is this just sort of a bit yeah. of a unilateral move by him? I think what was happening is that during the election period, because Marcos really needed the Duterte's, I mean, I would argue that probably 40% of the 60% votes he got is really Duterte support, right? Uh, he was sounding more like Duterte when it comes to China, almost defeatist, right? Like we cannot do anything about South China Sea, we have to be nice to them. And he was very lukewarm towards the United States. And this is where I think the Biden administration has done a fantastic real politic job. Now, of course, the progressive in me is a little bit raising its eyebrows, but the <laughs> diplomat in me is impressed. I mean, Biden was the first foreign leader to call and congratulate Marcos. Within weeks, Wendy Sherman, the number two in State Department, visits Manila and assures Marcos that, hey, you're not going to go to jail if you visit U.S., even if your family is facing multiple court cases. Because there are ongoing court proceedings, yes, aren't they? Yes, against... contempt yeah. case. Yes, for not attending any of those U.S. court cases. And then you have Anthony Blinken visiting Manila by August. And then you have the vice president, Kamala Harris, visiting and making a very strong statement of, you know, alliance commitments, among other things. So I'm not saying they're schmoozing too much with Marcos, but definitely they have reassured Marcos that he has a safe home or a kind of a safe ally or friend in the United States, if ever, he wants to take a much more American-friendly stance vis uh, in comparison to Duterte. And we see Marcos has wholeheartedly welcomed this shift. And remember, Marcos is here to make it safe for the next generation. Believe it or not, there's another Marcos, Marcos III. Oh, no. Is Sandro, who could be also <laughs> presidential. So Marcos is making it nice for his son, if ever his son wants to run. And, 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 and tell me, I haven't forgotten you, Sulin Wong, by the way, I'm coming to you. What about the Chinese? How are they reacting to this flipping then? You know... They were under the impression that the Philippines is perhaps just a bigger Cambodia, right? I mean, I, I don't want to be offensive, but sometimes, <laughs> unfortunately, I am. I mean, the idea was that you get Hun Sen, everything else follows, right? I mean, that was the idea of the Chinese. So Duterte, they thought, is their Hun Sen. And then they realized that, well, even if you have the Filipino president on your side, you may not have the military, the media, the people, etc. Uh, so mm. I think the Chinese had to recalibrate their expectations. That's why I always said, forget about debt trap. My worry with China was pledge trap. They promised massive investments in the Philippines. None of them really came in. And so the Chinese, I think, already were expecting that things will not go their way in the way that they thought will go when Duterte promised them heaven, right? Which is, will essentially be on your side and abandon U.S. But I think they're still surprised by how fast change, things are changing under Marcos. Even I am surprised. I mean, I foresaw this in a piece back in June that Marcos will be more like his father, meaning strong with U.S., but friendly with China and the others. But it's, this is too fast. So my worry is we might get locked into the U.S. strategy on Taiwan and South China Sea in ways that will make it very hard for us to later on recalibrate things towards China. China is having its own worries and anxieties and some recalibration to make. That's why I think they're looking forward to Marcos' visit in January and see what concessions they can get what out Marcos of. is going to China in January? Yes, in January. So I'm sure Marcos will do rhetorical damage control, but operationally speaking, huge things are already happening vis-a-vis -vis US. Ah, interesting. Okay. Well, that's a perfect segue to talk about China's year because 2022 hasn't been an easy one for China's President Xi Jinping. I mean, he has had some real highs, most notably at the party congress when he was confirmed for a third term in office and had all his loyal allies, importantly, installed in the key party positions. But some real challenges, some of his own making are very obvious, particularly about, of course, management of COVID with very significant responses from the Chinese people. Now, Su Lin Wong, you, you've put together this big series, this big podcast series called The Prince for The Economist. What's the audit you'd make of uh, Xi Jinping's year? 
I think you're right. It has been a really mixed year. So a couple of months ago, we saw him really consolidate his power at this big, important party congress where he appointed a bunch of loyalists and he broke convention to stay on beyond his standard 10 years. Uh, and so over the past 10 years under Xi Jinping, we've seen China become much more closed, much more authoritarian, much less free. Uh, and, you know, he has also been rewarded for that and he's been able to appoint a bunch of his own people now to the very top of the party and he's going to stay on for at least the next five years, perhaps 10 more years, perhaps the rest of his life. It's it's very, very hard to know. But despite his consolidation of power, he faces huge challenges, as you just mentioned, Geraldine, you know, zero COVID being the, the big one. And over the past few weeks, we've seen this extraordinary shift away from China's zero COVID policy towards an incredibly messy exit that I think has taken many China watchers by surprise. And, you know, we, we first saw some whispers of this after the important political meeting. You know, there was a, a plan announced about how China was going to ease some of its COVID restrictions. Bear in mind that for the past three years, people in China have paid an immense cost because of China's zero COVID policy. Earlier this year, we saw one of the world's financial financial centres, Shanghai, go into lockdown, you know, but actually there's been tens of millions of people enrolling lockdowns across the country, not just this year, but in 2020 and 2021 too. Now we're seeing a sort of shift away from that policy, but it's likely that things are going to get a whole lot worse before they get better because of low vaccination rates among the elderly, mm. the fact that most people have been jabbed with Chinese vaccines rather than the more effective Pfizer and uh, other mRNA vaccines. And um, China just does not have the number of hospital beds it's going to need as uh, more and more people contract COVID. And so there are, you know, worst case scenario estimates that 1.5 million people might die uh, as China comes out of COVID. Look, it's very interesting, the, world, the role of nationalism in modern China, and it has been much discussed that, you know, that this has been very much a feature of the Chinese Communist Party sort of, in a way, whipping up nationalism. I read a, a very interesting piece by somebody called Yun Zhang. She's from the Australian Institute of the International Affairs, talking about the way in which nationalism and all the sort of contract between the Chinese Communist Party that, that if you submit to our rule, we'll continue to ensure the economy grows. And that actually the COVID lockdown somewhat broke that compact, particularly among young people's attitudes. It's tempered nationalist sentiment among young people because they can see that the outside world is living slightly differently. Now, mm. I thought that was possibly, you know, the biggest changes since 1989, Sulin. I wonder if you, how you take that interpretation. I think undoubtedly we've seen a huge rise in nationalism in China under Xi Jinping over the past 10 years or so. What, what I would note about those extraordinary protests we saw in China a few weekends ago where, you know, very, very brave, mostly young people came out and protest in multiple cities uh, in a way that we haven't seen since, as you mentioned, 1989. You know, their courage is to be commended. But that was, you know, in total maybe a couple of thousand people around the country in a country of 1.4 billion people. So I think it's very, very hard to make broad assessments of what people across this right. enormous country are saying. But no doubt that among an elite and, you know, among like university students and a liberal elite, there is huge frustration and huge anger and huge disappointment at the direction the country is heading in. But I wouldn't say that we can say for sure that that is how everyone across the country is feeling. No. It's really interesting as well to draw some parallels with Australia here, because just as in Australia, COVID zero in China was very popular until it wasn't. <laughs> right and democracies and, and authoritarian systems have to grapple with exactly the same shift in sentiment what's interesting though is to see how that sort of tipping point plays out in an authoritarian system far less suited to accommodating changes in popular will and i've been surprised by how quickly the about face from, from beijing has come now of course uh, in practice um, that is very messy and it's almost inevitable that uh, covid rates and, and mortality rates will, will climb and and who knows what the effects of that will be on uh, on how xi jinping mm. is judged uh, by his population 
Look, before we leave China, there was a very interesting conference this week run by the Australia-China Research Institute talking about 50 years of formal relationship between China and Australia, at which Madame Fu Ying, who was the former very, very popular ambassador here for China, now very senior in foreign affairs in China, at which she spoke in her very sophisticated way, telling us to not cast gratuitous judgments on Chinese behaviour internally. Let's have a listen. There's uh, always high public attention on anything that concerns human rights. I understand it. I think it's rooted in Australian history and its own experience. Just like the Chinese are very sensitive about foreign interference, it's also rooted in our history. We were semi-colonized and we had trauma in our history. So we are very sensitive about any other foreign interference. So when the Australians are interested in China's domestic affairs, I understand it too. But if Australians think they have the right to finger pointing at China, and some people, they talk like they know better how to run China. It's not welcome, not at all. (laughs) Not welcome, not at all. Just a little reminder there, as I said, of um, a a small shot across the bows. Now, look, before we leave today, I want to go to Indonesia. It was the site, of course, of the uh, big G20 meeting. There's a lot happening. There's these quite surprising developments around management of sexual behaviour around uh, attitudes towards the president, also attitudes to judges, let alone uh, the president trying to build this big new capital for which he doesn't seem to be able to encourage any money. Richard Haydarian, what's your Mm. take on the state of Indonesia at the moment, given you have this Southeast Asian focus? Yeah, actually, I I personally feel a little bit burned about this because for the past two, three, three years, I kept on saying, like, Indonesia is a country that deserves much more attention and recognition internationally. And I was a little bit disappointed when Jokowi's visit to Ukraine and Russia to kind of mediate the conflict. I felt it was not getting the kind of recognition and respect in the Western media circles, or at least some of the circles. So I felt Indonesia was like really the world's biggest invisible nation. And, you know, I was in Bali in Jakarta over the past week or so. I mean, I saw how much they invested in these events, infrastructure-wise, prestige-wise, emotionally-wise. So I felt perhaps maybe Indonesia's time has arrived, not only as a kind of a rising economy and expected to be one of the biggest in the world in the coming decades, but also as a major Muslim democracy, right? I mean, I spend a lot of time in the Middle East. This issue of Islam and democracy has been at the top of my head for quite some time. And then suddenly this comes down. But if you break it down, it's classic case of Javanese balancing, right? So on one hand, there is this kind of a retrogressive aspect to it. Clearly, we have no idea how is this going to be implemented. Like the first thing comes to your mind, what happens with the tourists, right? Foreign yeah. tourists to go to places like Bali, right? Yeah, they say it won't apply effectively to yeah, tourists. Exactly, right. <laughs> but, but you can imagine a lot of gray area implementations uh, or, or gray areas uh, in the law could provide room for abuse. On the other hand, remember, the new uh, constitutional revision also talks about the centrality of Panchasila, right? Mm. The semi-secular uh, cornerstone of the Indonesian state that emphasizes respect for plural, pluralism that is inherent to the Indonesian society, including their Buddhist, Hinduist, uh, non-Muslim uh, tradition. And that's why if you look at it, the main Islamist party in Indonesia actually had reservations with this law because it knows that it could prevent it from pushing for a much more exclusivist Islamist version or vision of Indonesia. But clearly, this could also be weaponized against leftist, progressive, semi-communist groups mm. in the country. Mm. So it's really 50 shades of questionability. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, the human, human rights watch researcher Andreas Hasono told the BBC that people are saying, oh, this, these oppressive laws could be applied broadly. He said, no, it's that they'll, be, they'll provide avenues for very selective enforcement. Exactly. That's his exactly worry. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, just the last point, I'm sure our authors have a lot to say on this, but my point is, you know, if, if you're Philippines right now, it kind of gives you a shot on Freude in, a, in the worst sense of the word. Because remember, under Duterte, suddenly the Philippines was not considered as the most democratic country in the region. And I felt weird that Indonesia was considered more democratic than us under Duterte, although I understand where that's coming from. But now the Philippines has once again cemented this position as the most democratic country in the region, except all of us are operating from extremely low base. And so what's happening with Indonesia is it's really a it's, it's, it's semi-tragic because it tells you about the limits of the democratization march in Southeast Asia, where there's extreme level of economic dynamism, 
But in terms of our political democratization, we're really seeing ceilings here. We're really seeing limits to this. And if Jokowi mm-hmm. is not going to do this in terms of pushing for democratic reform and, and deepening, I wonder what's going to happen after Jokowi when you can have even much more questionable or, or authoritarian populist figure mm-hmm. lurking over the horizon. So that's the worry mm-hmm. I have right now. I might give you final yeah. comment, uh, Heve. Yeah, look, I mean, just to end on a slightly more positive note, I mean, I agree with with everything that uh, Richard has mentioned. And um, it, it is concerning. There's a lot of ambiguity, but the ambiguity itself is is concerning. Uh, look, just to come back to the winners of 2022 I, I, and to end on an optimistic note, I do think on the, on the, on the, on the level of foreign policy, uh, Indonesia and Cambodia do deserve uh, special credit mm. for, for keeping the G20 running for, uh, for in Indonesia's case and for uh, Cambodia for not replicating Replicating um, its disaster in 2012. I think ASEAN as well as Cambodia have moved on since that debacle and we may have to and you might remember that was a time when basically uh, Cambodia essentially as chair in 2012 uh, vetoed uh, the ability to produce a joint policy document at leadership level on the question of the South China Sea reportedly at China's request. That has not really replicated itself and I think both uh, Cambodia and Indonesia really deserve credit for keeping multilateralism going at a time when it's uh, under unprecedented pressure. And as Richard has mentioned earlier, uh, for exercising that sort of middle power agency in our region in ways that have surprised us. I think, you know, no G20 presidency has had to face the geopolitical challenges that Indonesia was dealt mm. with this year. The summit was not boycotted. It did not fall apart. It produced a communique which, uh, in, in in very broad terms, uh, condemned uh, the, Russia's invasion of Ukraine further than many people thought. And I think it has to be considered a success. So it keeps the flame of multilateralism alive. And for that reason alone, I believe uh, Cambodia and Indonesia both deserve some special credit. Okay. Well, that is a very interesting overview. Thank you to you all for covering so much. So economically, have our Lema Hugh. Richard Haderian and Sulin Wong, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. And Pleasure. Thank you very much. And just also I mentioned that next week uh, we will be inviting Mick Ryan uh, back to the show for a sort of an audit at the end of the year of, of the conduct of the war, given those really quite interesting developments about uh, um, Putin talking about, talking about a negotiated settlement. Extraordinary. Up next, reforming or is it obliterating the House of Lords? In the coming days, the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is expected to perform a ritual that, if his Labour opponent Keir Starmer has his way, could become a thing of the past. This week, around 20 people are expected to be confirmed as lifetime peers of the House of Lords, joining the 830 MPs who already sit in Westminster's upper house. Now, they were gifted the role by the former Conservative Prime Minister Boris Johnson on his resignation. Now the British Labour Party is being urged to abolish the House of Lords entirely if it wins the next election and replace it with a wholly elected and much smaller body. Now, if that happens, our next guest might just be out of a job. Helen Little, the Baroness of Cotedyke, is a Labour member of the House of Lords and she's also a former High Commissioner to Australia and very popular one at that. Welcome to Saturday Extra. Good to be with you, Geraldine. Um, Helen Little, this would be a massive shift for Westminster, really, to abolish Lords and the thousand-odd years of history that comes with it. Is Labour genuinely considering it? Well, yes, we've actually had it as part of our policy for many, many years. The last attempt we made was in 1999, and it's not easy. It's not an easy job to get rid of the House of Lords. At that time, we were trying to get rid of a thousand hereditary peers, and we ended up having to compromise, and we still have 90 hereditaries left, but they vote from their own ranks uh, on who gets to stay. But it's something that's really, really firmly embedded uh, within the Labour Party. And I only come into the House of Lords in, in a way that I could commit to reforming it. Having said that, you were talking about the more than 800 people. Not everybody attends because when you become a peer, you're a peer for life. And as a consequence, we have quite a few people who are pretty elderly. So it's about just short of 400 who actually uh, attend. And they do some good things. You know, scrutiny is what they're good at. 
but it is uh, it, it's an anachronism. It's time for it to go. It's been time for it to go for 50 years. Yes, and I'm going to come to some of those aspects of what it does do. I mean, this uh, recommendation was made by the former Labor Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, in his commission on the UK's future. I think the, the tagline was to bridge the gap between Britain as we are and Britain, the, the Britain we can become. So... Did the Labor leader, Keir Starmer, brief you and other Labor peers, I wonder, on this plan, given that you you would be redundant if it goes ahead? I mean, you sound as if you're sort of uh, sanguine about that, but what did did your other peers make of it? Well, uh, they're quite keen on this, actually. Most people have come into the Lords committed to reforming, and uh, we're in a position now where Labour does not have a majority in the Lords. In the past, they always tried to make sure that that, uh, the Lords wouldn't just blindly follow the Commons, but at the moment it is like that. And it's, it's challenging, and even with a majority of just short of 190, as we had in the the 1990s, it is hard to turn it round. One thing I should say in in defence of my colleagues is it's not a salaried house. We don't get paid wages for coming to to the House of Lords. We get a a daily allowance that we can claim that's about 330 British pounds. I don't know what that is in in Aussie dollars. It'll be about 500. uh, Yeah, be around about 500. But uh, people tend to do it quite far advanced in their careers. So, you know, they've they've achieved everything they wanted to do and now this is an opportunity to do something that takes what they're engaged in to different levels. So there is some good in it as well and we don't want to lose that scrutiny, but it's absolutely absurd that I go around being called the Right Honourable, the Baroness, when I'm a bus driver's daughter. (laughs) Well, I do note that most amendments to legislation come from the Commons are made in the Lords. So I was quite surprised to read that, actually. Well, a lot of the really detailed scrutiny is in the Lords, but there are restrictions in what we can do because we are not elected, and that's something with reform uh, we would have to look at very, very carefully. If um, something has been in a party's manifesto, we would send amendments back three times to the House of Commons and if after the third time the House of Commons doesn't back down we would back down because we are not directly elected and as a consequence it does create a little bit of of friction uh, between the two if the measure has not been in a, a manifesto then well anything can happen but it it is the detailed scrutiny let me you're talking about amendments i used to be the energy minister and my background is in economics and i was taking through a bill called the utilities bill and we and we thought we'd done a pretty good job and it's a courtesy that the minister in the commons will come and stand uh, in the lords when they start the debate on the bill because it then has to go into the lords And within 10 minutes, I knew I'd screwed up because I didn't have an an engineering background. None of my officials had an engineering background. And the first man to speak had been CEO of one of the major power companies. And he very quickly explained how what we were proposing wouldn't actually work without a change in the engineering. And I ended up putting in, some, somebody said it was hundreds of amendments, but I don't. I think that's a bit extreme. But I had to put down a lot of amendments to correct what we had got wrong factually. So we don't want to lose that bit of it, but it's getting to, get to, to have that kind of scrutiny with uh, really dedicated people without having been elected. We need to try and sort that out. Well, in fact, amongst the many concerns raised this week was the idea that a reformed Lords would be reduced to a mere House of Review, even though you're saying that there's some real merit there, and the and the process would be politicised. I think that was one of the key things with campaigning and so forth, if it became elected, and that that's the very thing that you, shouldn't happen. What do you make of that argument? I think we need to think that one through and we need to work out how we do that because there is one element in the House of Lords that is actually pretty crucial. It's the group that is called the crossbenchers. And, you know, if you want to find a Nobel Prize winner, you probably find it among them. 
and they are people who of real distinction but they're not political. They're not aligned in any way. These are not the kind of people who would stand for election. And I, I, we need to try to find a way that we can still um, involve them. There's also an, a lot of extremely disabled people who are campaigners on disability rights. And we've got Tani Gray-Thompson, the Paralympian. How do we get people like that still to become engaged? And we need to work through that because they, they make a phenomenal contribution and we don't want to lose that. Is there a middle road that would be more palatable to voters and to MPs? Because there are competing plans, aren't there? Yes, there are competing plans. And I think we will have to go through a number of iterations before we come to end game. Uh, partly because you can only achieve constitutional change in Britain with consensus. So we need to work towards some kind of uh, consensus. And that is not going to be easy. You know, as I said last time, we had a majority of 190 out of 650 members and we still had to compromise to to limit the hereditaries and also to make to cease the, the, the House of Lords being the, uh, the most senior court in the land with the establishment of the Supreme Court and the, the separation of powers. So it's not easy. But we're going to get there because there is real commitment and drive behind it. Well, um, in fact, it's certainly not easy. And one of the arguments is that over history, if you if you look at the efforts that have gone in, um, a change is achieved in small areas, but not in big areas. So, I mean, people have got to put an enormous amount of political capital in if they're going to make the sort of reforms that that you're talking about. Yes, and that's that also looks to the wider picture of Gordon Brown's paper, which is about trying to decentralise the very centralised United Kingdom and putting local uh, power into place where people can take decisions locally to inspire growth quite apart from anything else. We are the most centralised country in Europe, so that needs to change and that's not going to be easy to change. But we, we want to see more elected mayors. Uh, we want to see more powers given to the Scottish Parliament and the, the Welsh and the Northern Irish to bring politics closer to the people. After everything we've been through this year, with our three prime ministers, complete upheaval, lots of scandals. People are getting fed up with the political structures and we now have to say, right, here's a way forward, a way where we can put these things right. Mm. There were a few other interesting suggestions in the Gordon Brown plan, including that the Scottish Parliament could have some power over foreign affairs and could sign up to agreements with Europe. Would that quieten the Scottish nationalist movement, speaking as you are with your lovely accent? <laughs> well, I think that would be a, quite a difficult one uh, with the Scottish nationalists. They have an image of of um, Scotland of you know four hundred years ago that is completely independent. But the vast majority of people don't want that. They want because we have a a, a different a political system. We also have a different legal system. Uh, our law in Scotland is based in Roman law, whereas in England it's Anglo-Saxon. And a lot of the structures that we have in Scotland were replicated by the European Union. And a lot of people uh, really res resent the very fact that we had to come out of the European Union because of a, an all-UK vote. So if we could be part of the European Commission on Human Rights of Erasmus, which is the, the very sophisticated uh, scholarship system for universities, that would be a big, big boon to Scotland and people would really appreciate that whilst remaining part of the United Kingdom because there's more that unites us than divides us. OK, we'll watch with a great deal of interest. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Geraldine. Helen Little, the Baroness of Dyke a Labour member of the House of Lords and a former High Commissioner to Australia. Well, up next, the beauty and the terror of Australia's deserts. The names I'm about to offer you now are legendary in the Australian story. The Gibson, the Great Sandy, the Little Sandy, the Simpson, the Streslecki, the Tanami. All our great deserts that both captivate and terrify us a bit. There are other lesser discussed regions, the Barclay Tableland, the Channel Country, the Flinders Ranges, 
the Nullarbor, the Pilbara, the Riverina, they're all part of our arid zones, or we might call it the outback. In all, they represent 5 million square kilometres, three quarters of our island continent, rich with ecological complexity and part of what my last guest today will dub the Australian immensity. Dr Steve Morton is determined to tell arid Australia as it is, in all its diversity, that when people say desert, they picture something like the Sahara, big clouds of sweeping sand, when in fact the Australian experience is really quite different. Dr Morton's an ecologist who worked with CSIRO for years investigating arid zones and he's produced, along with photographer Mike Gillam, a beautiful work called Australian Deserts. Not just a picture book, but quite dense with information and quite romantic. And it's my pleasure to welcome him now. Thank you, Geraldine. Good, good, good day. Why did we become so arid here in Australia? Well, because because the continent is so old, Geraldine, it drifted from uh, its original position 90 million years ago, uh, attached to Gondwana, into the subtropical zone where the rainfalls are inherently lower and, and more uncertain. So it's our geological history which delivered us aridity. aridity. Right. And, and when roughly do we assume that happened? I mean, what's the latest scholarship about this? Well, about, about 20 million years ago, the continent drifted into this zone and began to, began to dry out. And that's when the rainforest retreated to the east coast and aridity and eucalypts and fire and kangaroos spread across the rest of Australia. Yeah. So it goes back probably to the Miocene epoch in, uh, 20 million years ago beginning and then passing through a whole series of Ice Age challenges when you know, conditions became cold and dry over the last 300,000 years. We have a long history of being dry. We s- well, that was my question. How do we compare with other parts of the world for this sort of drift? Well, well, all the continents have drifted, but, but Australia's got its own unique trajectory, which is, which is you know, um, it only began to, to stop drifting when it rammed into uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, be- beginning in the Miocene, so so it's 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 unique to Australia, and and of course its expression dryness in Australia is also uh, uncharacteristic of other parts of the of the the world's deserts. So what does South America, for instance, wouldn't have something similar? Well, well, not in, not in the way that our climate is expressed, Geraldine. And the book goes into this in very fine detail. The thing about it is not just the age of the of the, of, of the place and its ancient origins. Um, it's also the fact that aridity here is characterised by extreme climatic uncertainty. That that's the unique aspect of Australia. Mm. That the climate is the most erratic on earth, and and that's that's because the continent is so flat. Uh, that there are no barriers to uh, that, that uplift air and and provide for rain to fall. That means that the entire continent is exposed to the El Nino Southern Oscillation and all the other related mm. uh, f- climate phenomena. Uh, one of the things you say is when people say desert, they picture something like the Sahara, you know, big clouds of sweeping sand, when in fact the Australian experience, this is really your passion, I think, is quite different. Thanks, Geraldine. That's dead right. So, so people are surprised. Yes, it's called a desert, um, but, but when you come and visit it, for, for much of it, for much of that five million square kilometres, it's actually a shrubland or a grassland or even a woodland. And the reason for that is that the pattern of rainfall, uh, the uncertainty of rainfall, delivers not just long dry periods, but occasional periods of flooding rain. That's the characteristic of the place. And so the flooding rains provide an opportunity for perennial plants to establish themselves, get their roots down, and simultaneously they recharge all those hidden moisture stores in the soil that allow the plants to persist through the inevitable dry times that intervene. So, so the place is in fact much more vegetated than, than, mm. uh, than, than people expect and many other deserts are. And it's for that reason the very word desert is rather confusing because often you're looking at a shrubland. It's only a desert so named in Australia, such as the Gibson, because our society, our, the, the white society, has not found a way to make use of it economically. The, the, the Pilbara can look a bit like the Sahara. Uh, yeah, yes, of course. So when it gets dry, uh, you know, four or five or six years or ten years of dry spell, then of course it looks pretty arid. Um, but, but you know, 
that the rains are going to come again at some time. Mm. Well, I'm going to pose you now some of the exact questions you pose and try to answer in your book. The first one being, because of this incredible uncertain rainfall, how do plants cope with this volatility and stay alive? Really, how do they over years? Through physiological adaptation to ensure that perennial plants can withstand the harsh long dry spells that go on for years. So that's why there's a grey-green tint in the vegetation, Geraldine. It's all protected by hairs and resins, um, and, and they do that in order to allow themselves to, to be sustained by minor trickles of moisture brought up from soil moisture stores by deep roots. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have ephemeral plants that don't bother to fight that. They just create seeds, uh, which last for years, grow after a pulse of rain, and then set more seed and, and disappear. They avoid it. So we're really watching Darwin's theories absolutely play out here, are we? Oh, well, yes, of course. Yes. Yeah, you, yes, I mean, the whole place is explicable for, through, the, through the lens of evolution, yes. What animals are the most abundant and diverse in these arid places then, and why so? Well, the, play, the, the animals that do best are those that also can adopt the sort of strategy of a perennial plant. And they are social insects, termites and ants. And they have colonies to which they can bring back supplies that allow them to, to harvest when abundance is there and to sustain themselves by locking down and, and, and using their own stores during the intervening dry periods. So ants and termites dominate. Right. And then what about when the floods do come then? Because we're sort of used to them adapting to the dry, but the floods are another story, like thinking of what's been happening in um, the whole, um, uh, you know, Lake Eyre and so on, where they've now had, what, two years of rain yeah. that they haven't expected. So what, what's it like then for those animals? Right. So, so that's another class of animals altogether, that they utilise these peaks. They are called the boom and bust species. And the pelicans that, that, that fly to Lake Eyre and use the resource when it's present are classic examples of that. So, so the boom and bust strategy is almost unique to Australia. It's certainly very distinctive here. Because you have these massive peaks of production and biological activity, there's a groups of organisms that have found ways to hop from peak to peak and, and use it when it's there and bail out when it's not. So they're at the other end of the spectrum from those social insects that, that are that are harvesting uh, in the peak and then using their own stores to withstand the long dry spells. Is that making sense? Yeah, oh, yeah well, no, it is. It's just extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, it, it is well, extraordinary it, the more you talk about it, actually. It, well, it is, and that's clearly that's been my passion for, for 30 or 40 years, is to try and understand this place in its own merits, not, not by bringing an external lens to it, like why isn't it like the Sahara, but just trying to learn why it is like it is. Why does it feel... Uh, like it does? Why does it look like it does? Why does it behave like it does? That's what we scientists have been trying to understand through, through these past decades. What about the significance of landscape patterns you can see in, in vegetation due to the soil that they sit in? Does that vary? Yeah, th thanks again, Geraldine, because that, that, that's how the moisture, uh, the, the pattern of moisture plays out. So when you get heavy rain, the water, of course, moves across the landscape. It runs to the lowest point. And that whole process carries with it nutrient and forms soils and, and creates moisture stores. So the run-on and run-off hydrology of inland Australia is the, the dominant ecological force. That's what creates the landscape pattern that, that you see when you're flying across it in an aeroplane. Mm, indeed you do. And are you talking primarily sand as opposed to clay, by the way? I mean, maybe there are far, far more delineations that I'm not, uh, you know, not describing. I do wonder about that. Well, yeah, there, there are many delineations, yes. No, I'm, I'm not talking about any specific type of soil. Every soil type in this highly differentiated ancient landscape has its own uh, um, peculiarities of moisture storage or, or, or runoff. And so sands are the most absorbent and, and, and that they characterise the western deserts. Because they're infertile, we call them deserts. Uh, in the firmer soils in the eastern part of the Arizona, in the Channel Country, in the Riverina, the, the water runs from harder soils into channels, and that creates the biological activity. So, so depending on where you are in the Arizona, Geraldine, uh, that the water movement is different, but the, but the fundamentals of, of that water movement and their ecological consequence are the same. 
Mm. Uh, in your own um, con- conversion to this interest in our arid lands is almost spiritual, Steve. Uh, in your, you write about in your <laughs> teens, uh, going with your father from his farm in the Murray River region across the Riverina to the Hay Plain, and you were there chatting with other farmers in a creek bed as you do, thick salt bush around black box trees, when all the birds started to sing and you were enthralled. And this quote I've taken, I was shaken loose from my destiny as a farmer and transformed into a desert ecologist to which you've devoted yourself. By the sound of you, that thrill has never really left you. Thank you for quoting that. Yes, that, that's that's a true story. That's what happened. Uh, these brown songlarks, I realised, you know, as the years went by, were calling to me, not just to their mates. And yes, I, I, I became I became emotionally attached to the, the to the country that I was attempting to study as a scientist. And if that's spiritual, well, so be it. Um, it is certainly more than simply an intellectual interest, uh, Geraldine. It's it's an emotional attachment. I love it. It certainly sounds like that. I mean, there's there's other parts of your book which you you make the point that uh, you what you've learned is the other big lesson of arid zone life. Looking down at the patch of ground you stand on, in other words, your feet, and at the horizon, and you say that is one of the key lessons from desert life. Why do both matter? Uh, because you can't understand what's going on at your feet if you're not taking account of the landscape pattern in which you're embedded. And going back to the movement of water, uh, you know, over the surface of the ground and beneath the surface, that, that water is driving the life that you're seeing at your feet. And if you don't look at the landscape, you won't realise where you are in that, in that uh, spectrum of water availability. Mm. That, that, that's, that's the marvel of it. Um, it. It is interpretable. It's immense and vast and it seems so... Uh, un- uncaring of, of human beings. But, but if you choose to look at it carefully, you can find a way into it and understand that immensity. Which I suppose is exactly what the Indigenous people have done. Uh, and again, you, you, you make the point that this is not a book uh, about Indigenous understanding, which you have incredible respect for, um, but they did have this real sense of a story being able to be interpreted, if I hear you correctly. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, in capitals, uh, yes to that, Geraldine, that proposition. So, so look, in the end, I, I reckon my, my major response to the place is one of awe or humility. Humility at the, at the extraordinary cosmology uh, that Aboriginal people developed to explain the formation and the functioning of the country that they belonged to. Uh, you know, awe and humility at the, at the way in which the early white uh, settlers found a way to make a living, uh, you know, s- scratching as it was in the early pastoral activity and the fact that, the, that these, the successes to them are still present in a, in a remarkable community across inland Australia. Yes, it's a matter of being humble and, and, and awed by the place. Well, Steve, I think you're an extremely good evangelist for that. Thank you very <laughs> much for joining us and congratulations. Thanks, Geraldine. Dr. Steve Morton, the very passionate Steve Morton, who produced this book, Australian Deserts, along with photographer Mike Gillam. It's published by CSIRO. One of our um, texters, one of my memorable trips was driving down the Canning after a very wet period in 2001. Every uh, interdunal valley was a riot of plants, but each with its own variety of plants differing widely. Thank you, David Wade in Canberra. And a little mention too, for those of us who are heading for holidays, the AMA in New South Wales has urged drivers to slow down and be cautious. It says the holiday rush does not include rushing on our roads. Too true. There are tragedies there. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Doog. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now. You 
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.